Hi there, I'm Mark Isero, and this is Article Club, where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. This month, we're focusing on The Roe Baby by Joshua Prager, which appeared on the cover of the Atlantic Monthly last September. It's an incredibly well-reported, well-researched piece that offers a nuanced and personal perspective on the abortion issue. I'm fully aware that the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson is likely going to come out this week, and that our discussion is likely going to come just a few days later. And so that is why I was extremely appreciative that Mr. Prager agreed to join Article Club and do this interview. He's a writer of immense care and empathy, not just in this piece, but also in his book, The Family Row, an American Story, which I'm reading right now. Mr. Prager doesn't shy away from the politics of abortion or the divide we have in this country, but he centers the people first and most. This article is about many things, but most of all, it's about Shelley Thornton, the daughter of Norma McCorvey, also known as Jane Roe. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Josh, thank you so much for doing Article Club. Thanks for having me. It's so exciting to talk about your article, The Roe Baby and The Atlantic, and also the book. I've got it here. Really exciting. We're going to be raffling off one of the books when we discuss. But when I read this article, I was just blown away right from the beginning, not just because of the quality of the writing and the reporting, but also just I feel like I'm an educated sort of guy, went to college or whatever. I I taught government and I just didn't know very much. And yeah. I think that that's probably true for a lot of readers. Like, like, was that true also for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you had told me 12 years ago when I happened upon an article in The New Yorker that led me to this whole thing, that I would devote the next 11 years of my life to this issue, I would have thought you're nuts. And in part, that would be because I knew very little about Roe v. Wade. I sort of reflexively knew that I was pro-choice, but I hadn't really given it much thought. And, you know, I happened upon an article written by Margaret Talbot, actually the woman who then reviewed the book. So it was a funny um, coming full circle moment. But I happened upon an article was about gay marriage. And it mentioned in there that sometimes a plaintiff is good for the cause she represents. Sometimes she is in the latter category. It mentioned Norma McCorvey, Jane Roe, who had famously sort of switched sides. And then it mentioned parenthetically that she had not had an abortion. And it just sort of moved on, but that changed my whole life because this light bulb went off and I was like, wait a minute, she didn't have an abortion. And then I said, of course not, because a lawsuit takes longer than a pregnancy. So that's wild. And then I sort of went online and I was like, you know, roll baby. And I saw something fascinating that while, you know, you could see from the internet that the great majority of Americans like you, like me, hadn't sort of realized that. There was a sort of faction of those who opposed Roe, and I call them the pro-life, just as I call people on this side the pro-choice. I believe in sort of letting people choose to call themselves what they wish to. But there was a faction among the pro-life that felt very strongly about this unknown child. Norma had, Jane Roe had relinquished the child to adoption, and they saw this human being, wherever he or she was, as the sort of living you know, embodiment of their argument against abortion, because they could say, you know, it wasn't abstract. They could say, hey, you know, had Roe been decided before Norma conceived, you would have murdered this human being. And that was a very visceral, important thing for them. And I said to myself, well, I bet you that whoever he or she is, they know who they've been born to even though Norma placed them for adoption, just struck me as probable. And I turned out to be right. 
And I said, and, and I bet that's been a very difficult thing for them. Yeah, I can see why not just personally, but also because of your work, you would be interested in this. But it's like a whole other thing to actually pursue it. Obviously, at that time, you didn't know you were going to put 10, 12 years into it. And I wanted to ask you right from the beginning, because uh, my colleagues and friends and peers in Article Club have been asking too, like, how do you decide from something that you're personally interested in versus pursuing it with all of your identities, and especially the identity of being a man in this case? So I will tell you the fact that I am a man, I didn't even, that, I, I couldn't imagine at the time, again, that I'd be writing a book. And so in the beginning, I'm like, okay, I just want to find this human being. It might be a man. Like, what do I know? Maybe there's just sort of an interesting story here. And I, I got deeper and deeper into it. And I started to address that question only once I'd started writing the book, because I was like three, four, five years into it already. So what happened was I reached out to Norma sort of right away. Within like a week, I found a priest online who knew her. I sent a note, you know, would you connect me with her? I wrote her a very sort of, you know, respectful note. She did not wish to speak about this. And there, there are reasons for that. She was actually reimagining her life, not as a sinner, but as a victim. And it's sort of a very moving thing that goes to the heart of who Norma was. Norma was gay. Norma had to renounce her homosexuality when she went over to the pro-life side. Of course, she was still gay, but she had to sort of say she wasn't. It was a phase. It was a this. It was a that. Very depressing. That, that took an enormous toll on who she was, um, on, on her. And, and she spoke about that very openly. But anyway, um, I then reached out to her former partner, this woman who was really the only person on either side of the issue who truly only cared about Norma and not Jane Rowe. This woman, Connie Gonzalez, she loved her. Norma, unfortunately, not treated her very well. She left her. And when I found, right after she had a stroke, and when I found Connie in Texas, about a year after I came upon that article, she said to me, you know what, Josh? My home has just been foreclosed on, she said. And Norma's private papers are in the garage and they're about to be thrown out. And I was like, don't throw those out. Those are very important. Um, can I have them? And um, she said, yes. And we put them into garbage bags, thousands of papers, put them in the trunk of my car. And those papers are now at a research library at Harvard, very important papers open to historians. And those papers enabled me to sort of reconstruct Norma's life over the course of years. And because her life wended its way through both sides, you could write this very big story, not only about Norma and Roe, but the whole of abortion in America. And on one piece of paper in, that, in those papers, one, Norma had given an interview with a Catholic newsletter, and she had mentioned the date of birth of her youngest child. And because of that one piece of paper, I was able to find the child. I reached out to her. I didn't reach out to her, actually, in case she didn't know she'd been born. I reached out to her mom, the woman who raised her. She thanked me for not reaching out to Shelly, reaching out to her. She promised she, she mentioned me to Shelly. Shelly got back in touch and said that she did not wish him, under any circumstances to speak with me. I said, okay, I promise you I will never write about you against your wishes. But at that point, I was really interested in this larger story. So I started to look for the other two children Norma had that had wished to adoption, Shelly's half-siblings. I found them. It took about a year. Melissa and Jennifer. They were fascinating windows into very different worlds. And when I then found them, I got back in touch with Shelly. And I said, by the way, Shelly, your sisters are participating with me. Would you like to now? And she said, yes. And so that was really when I then took off. That's the thing that was so clear right from the beginning in your piece is just the, the combination of both your being sensitive 
you would be sensitive to any source, but like sensitive, especially in this case, but also wanting to tell the story of the truth and like trying to get to the truth of this larger issue. How did you decide how to balance? Um, so for example, somebody could say, oh, by going and talking to her sisters, you are applying pressure on the Roe baby Shelley to talk, you know, like that would be a cynical view, but how did you in the, in those times sort of balance that? And for example, in your article, it, you don't, you don't say that you specifically met Norma herself. So that, that's an open question as well. Yeah. I ended up spending 40 years with Norma. Um, and I was with her hundreds of hours she came to really want to help me write this book. She, her life had been such a mess and she had told so many lies and been used by so many people that she literally wanted help figuring out what happened when. And we would go through her papers. Um, like she just wanted, she couldn't even remember like the names of the fathers of her children. She wanted to get it down. She was at the end of her life. She wanted to help me. Um, she cared a lot about Roe at the end of her life. She called it my law. And we could talk more about sort of Norma's view on my book. Now, I would understand that cynical view saying that I apply pressure on, the, on Shelley, but I can tell you this, um, and this maybe, you know, your readers don't know me and you don't know me and you have no reason to sort of believe this, but I have always really cared deeply about more about being a good person than a good journalist. And I always put that first, always. So for example, I said to Shelley, um, I said to her, by the way, here are just in terms of that initial sort of meeting, I said, here's the contact information for your sisters. You wanna be in touch with them and not speak with me, great. Like, you know, if you wish to participate. Um, and, but I also said to her like, what do you want? And she sort of articulated to me what I had heard so many times from other people and other stories I'd written about. Namely that it was a very difficult thing for her to keep a big secret. And she didn't, she was conflicted. She wanted to be unburdened of it. At the same time, she was very worried that sort of coming forward would sort of unleash, you know, there'd be people camped out on her lawn. So she also didn't, she wanted to know, like, how do I know that you'll be fair to me? So I, like, we, we sort of laid a lot of ground rules. And I was the one coming to her with the ground rules, meaning she, she wasn't savvy in the ways of journalists. I tried to sort of think of everything I could. So I said, I will never approach anyone about you without first clearing it with you. Also, when I finished this damn book, I said, you know, I will let you go over. I won't send you a copy of the book. I'm not allowed to do that. But I will go over literally every sentence of this book with you in which you appear. And if you feel, I'm, I'm pretty confident I said I'll have the facts right. But if you feel sort of something is off, you want to kind of say it differently, you'll tell me that. And we did that. And it took a lot of time, but we did that. And, you know, I think the most important thing for her was she wanted her story known. She wanted to tell it so on her terms. So she wanted it known over and over and over again. Like I was thrust into this situation. I didn't, this is not of my doing, you know, I was just conceived, but I didn't like seek out Roe v. Wade. And if you read the book, I go into a little in the article, but if you read the book, you sort of see at great length how, how important it is for her to sort of tell her side of things. And that was very gratifying for me. Yeah, it's absolutely clear, even in the article, 
um, how sensitive you are with um, Shelley in particular, especially in contrast with, wow, the National Enquirer and a current affair. That was just not good. Um, fairness, you know, just to say it doesn't take much to look <laughs> great in comparison to them. And I don't deserve the Nobel Prize for sort of trying to do it the Menchie way. But yes, they make me look pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. But it really comes through just the burden, not just of, of the actual secret itself, but the burden of deciding whether to keep it or not. Um, you quote her as saying, secrets and lies are like the two worst things in the whole world. I'm keeping a secret, but I hate it. And yeah. this must have taken years because she can't even really make close friendships because they, like, who, who does she trust? Like, she even- always feels that I'm going to be out and I can't tell anyone who I am. It's a very, very difficult thing. Um, and, you know, after my book came out, she then, I mean, first of all, interestingly enough, and I didn't think she would, she told the Atlantic they could come and take her picture. I had nothing to do with that. Like she wanted, in other words, to be part of this project. And then she told her story on CBS TV. She sort of set her piece and she has retreated whether she wishes down the road to do more. Maybe she will, but I don't know. But, uh, but how did it feel for you as, as far as not just as a journalist, as a person to spend so much time over years and also... I'm assuming that this secret of hers, she may have wanted to share it with you, but also the secret was with you for many years as well. Yeah. So this was the most stressful project of my life. You know, I mean, my God, here's what I could say. I, I, I mentioned in my book, the, the title, The Family Road, just once. And I mentioned it's right at the end. And I say that, you know, it refers both to Norma and her children, but also to the much larger sort of family, the tens of millions of people in America who are some way bound by abortion, you know, who've had them or chose not to have them or who know someone, it's very complicated. And people whose lives are really connected in a fundamental way to abortion, which is very different than saying a woman who had an abortion, we can talk about that. It, it happens to be a fact, like enormous studies bear out that women who have abortions do not by and large feel traumatized by them, quite the opposite. They report feeling relief as opposed to regret. But people who've devoted their lives to abortion, on people to fighting it or, or upholding it, you know, the legal right. Their lives are, are a tense lot. And this was not an easy thing to sort of venture into. And Shelley, most of all, Shelley and Norma, most of all, you know, I surrounded in the book, I don't know if it's even in the article, I surround Norma and her family with three other Texans, sort of who enabled me to tell the larger story of abortion in America, an abortion provider, one of the architects of the pro-life movement, and then a lawyer. And, you know, I was able to kind of write this sort of big thing. And, but of everyone, it was Shelley and Norma who really, it was very intense. And, and I was very glad to be done. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that section where you have the other three figures is so powerful as well, as well as the first section of the book, where you really talk about how I, I the, what, the what I got out of it was that it's an American story, that abortion is part of the American story, yeah. that specifically this, this tension of sex and religion. And I would also say that around um, sexual orientation as well, because a number of the key figures are part of the LGBTQ. Absolutely. Community. And that's no coincidence. So, you know, what was fascinating was, again, like I kept little by little getting deeper and deeper into it. And when I, what I realized was that Norma was this sort of, you know, remarkably, she was the perfect person, the pro-choice sort of lamented her as a plaintiff. She was complicated, difficult for them, but she was the perfect person to tell the larger story of abortion in America through, because the very same things that I argue sort of 
make abortion so fraught in this country, the incompatibility, the seeming incompatibility of sex and religion. They ripped her family apart. She was the third straight generation in her family to have um, an unwanted pregnancy. And you see what happens within her family. And it's the same thing that's happened to our country. Just to give one example, Norma's mother, Mary, she's, she gets pregnant at 17. She at that point is a Pentecostal and then later becomes a Jehovah's Witness. When she's pregnant at 17 in rural Louisiana, her family's horrified and they make her leave. They make her leave town. She's got to go to the big city of Baton Rouge. She gets a job at a Walgreens, gives birth there, and then they take her child from her. They take her daughter and they raise the daughter as her own. And this woman, Mary, has to go back home. She's now 18. And she has to pretend that the niece, excuse me, that the daughter just across the Atchafalaya River is her niece. That has devastating effects on her. She becomes an alcoholic. She gets married to Norma's mother, uh, father, you know, and their, their marriage is a total mess. And there's endless affairs and problems and strife. This is the home in which Norma is raised. And sex is seen as this very sinful, illicit thing. And as you know correctly, all the more so when Norma then comes out. Sexuality is just sort of, you know, being gay is a horrible, verboten thing. Her mother was unapologetic when she told me that she beat Norma for the fact that she came out as gay. You see Norma, she has sort of her first experiences with girls when she's young and, and she's she's sent to a home for quote unquote delinquent children. It's like this nightmare. And you know, by the time she then is 16, 17, 18 years old, sex and sexuality are just sort of so fraught for her. Um, and again, I argue they are similarly fraught in our country. Yeah, and when when Norma and Shelley almost met, they almost met up, they were on the phone. What a horrible, horrible yeah. conversation where yeah. Norma's like, hey, I'm ready. And Shelley says, well, not not if you're with your partner. That's right. That's because, right. I don't want I don't want you to see your grandkid. That's right. I don't want. And then, you know, and then, of course, Norma was never one to sort of tamp things down. She was always one to sort of throw a match on a fire. And she then says, you should be thankful to me. And she says, why? She says, for not aborting you, um, which is really a horrible thing to say. And 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 they never recover from that. I'll add just in terms of sort of, you know, the overlap here a lot in the between the gay community and the feminist community. It's not a coincidence because you have a lot of the same people who were fighting for the rights of gay people in the late 60s and early 70s were fighting for the rights of women. Mm -hmm. And so it's fascinating. You've got Norma, her adoption attorney, Henry McCluskey, and her lawyer in row, the initial lawyer, Linda Coffey, all three of them are gay. And they are the sort of, you know, three kind of mothers and fathers of Roe v. Wade in the beginning. It's fascinating. Henry McCluskey, one of the most interesting things for me to write about in the book was this amazing man. He was a closeted gay man um, who was very brave. He was fighting the sodomy laws in Texas um, in the early 70s, and he needed help. And he turned to his brilliant classmate at the University of Texas uh, Law School, Linda Coffey, who was also closeted. And she helps him. Like, she was so brilliant. She helps him. He's the only one brave enough to attach his name to the suit. Buchanan be bachelor, but she helps him. And then what's fascinating, though, she then does feel sort of up to attaching her name to Roe, whereas her co-counsel, Sarah Weddington, who becomes much more famous, doesn't feel up to that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, all this bravery and sort of overlap in these two communities, and it was exciting to write about them. I'll just add a very sad parenthetical. Henry McCluskey was murdered in 1973 um, by, by one of his partners, um, and, and he's been forgotten 
to history. And so it was exciting to sort of restore him to his proper place. That's the part about this article as well as the book. It's so tragic. It's so authentically American. And it seems like there's just so much to talk about and to say and to inform. And it it gets me to the question about sort of not just why did you follow the story, but what is the reason to continue with all of this work? I'll answer that question. Why the hell I did this? Um, But I'll first just say you used a really good phrase, authentically American. And one thing just left to my mind, you know, not only sort of in terms of its themes, your individualism and feminism, and obviously sex and religion, but also it was ludicrous in the sense that like when Norma becomes pro-life and so she's baptized in a swimming pool in Texas by a preacher with blow dried hair and dyed white teeth and the cameras are rolling. I mean, it's like ridiculous only in America. Right. And then Norma's on Nightline with Ted Koppel, and she infuriates the people, her, her new friends in the pro-life community, the pro-life uh, the Operation Rescue folks, because she's honest. And she's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm now with these folks. But I'll tell you what, I actually believe that abortion ought to be legal in the first trimester of pregnancy. And they're like, what? Oh, she's a baby Christian. Everything will be fine. They don't know how to deal with it. It's very, very American. Um, why the hell did I do this? Well, Part of it is just, you know, it did become all consuming. I needed to sort of first find this person. And by the time I did, then I'm like, oh, my God, I have Jane Rose private papers. These should be in the Smithsonian. I need to sort of be true to this story. This is important. I have to do this right. And part of it is that I deeply believe and have always believed in sort of empathy and understanding. And I know that this makes me sound very naive, but I really believe it is the only way forward for us as a country. It's impossible to be prejudiced against a group, an individual or a group, if you know that person, because then you love them. And I, and I believe in that. So I write about people in all their sort of humanity. I present this issue, which I believe is fraught for good reason. I don't think that in its sort of pure forms, either argument is insane. On the one hand, you have this sort of growing humanity of the fetus. On the other hand, you have the very real reasons a woman might wish to have um, an abortion. Um, and, you know, you end up finding yourself in my book, I do believe, actually kind of rooting for and feeling for people you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. And it's been very gratifying. You know, you have both sides, um, NPR and sort of the Washington Post and the New York Times and the sort of left and the Wall Street Journal and all these Christian organizations on the right who feel that they have been sort of fairly represented. And that begins, as I say, even with calling people what they wish to be called. I don't shy away from the fact that I'm pro-choice. I mentioned it in my author's note, but I really do believe in fairness. And I, I do think, you know, that if you know someone, as I say, who is maybe from a different group, then you will come to understand them. Obviously, we're all in our echo chambers right now. And so that is, um, that is something that many of us are not now doing. Yeah, I appreciate it too. It just seems like you're, like <clears throat> you humanize, like that the whole point is to humanize um, with this idea, not just of humanization, but nuance. You offer a lot of opportunities, even in the article for Shelley, to talk about the nuance of the issue for her personally. You know, it. everybody wants her to say, oh, are you pro-choice? Are you pro-life? And you allow her to say, nuanced things. And I want to believe in that too. Obviously, Article Club, like we believe in reading and we believe in connection and we believe in nuance. 
But sometimes I feel like, is that going to be enough, especially if nobody reads anymore? So like, for example, you know, this is in the Atlantic. We know who reads the Atlantic. Your book is, is amazing, but it's also big. Do you know what I mean? People have to read it. How does it feel, you know, to be a journalist who like you've, this is your, your life's work and you really fundamentally want people to be empathized and to, to have their authentic selves. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Look, I have never in my life, to my own sort of detriment, been motivated by like money or, you know, getting a book on a bestseller list. I'd be thrilled, you know, I'd be thrilled. Um, I seem to fall into the category, though, of like nuance. And, you know, it's much less sort of sensationalistic nuance, but it's also truer. You know, it was very gratifying. The book was just named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. I'm not going to tell you I'm above like getting excited about that. My six-year-old, my four-year-old gave me high fives because it now has a sticker on the book, which they got very excited about. But like, you know, I made this choice basically that I want to be proud of my work and I want to look back on it and feel that it was a contribution. I mean, I hope that doesn't sound really kind of self-serving, but it's true. Like you work on something for 10 freaking years, you want to be proud of it. I, I, I don't know how many people are sort of going to buy the book. It's incredibly timely and it's still not on a bestseller list. But, um, you know, I do feel that, you know, I really worked very hard and I'm, I'm proud of it. I, I just realized I didn't answer a question of yours before. You asked me about sort of being a man who wrote this story. And I do want to answer that. I want your listeners to think I, I ignored that. Um, so it was only a few years in that then I realized, hey, I'm writing a book about women for women like this, all six of my seven char uh, characters are women. Obviously, it's about Roe. And I started thinking a lot about that. And what I chose to do is I'm a person who doesn't like to be in the story. I'm only there if I absolutely have to be. If you read my whole book, it's a huge book. I'm only in there where it would be disingenuous for me not to be. So, for example, when I bring the daughters together. But I was thinking constantly about the fact that I'm a man. And several times I address it in, in sort of interesting ways. So, for example... When Sarah Weddington, the lawyer, is in the Supreme Court and she's arguing in front of the Supreme Court, nine men are sort of looking down at her up on this ledge, looking down on her. And I write about what that was like for her. She writes about that in that she had said that in that very moment, she was mindful of her own abortion. She had an abortion. She was mindful of the fact that they were looking over her. She wondered, does she look good? Like she gave a lot of thought about what she should wear. It was very sort of you know, interesting. And I write about that. I write about the fact that when the American Medical Association, this enormous organization of, of doctors, who were all men for basically a century, women weren't allowed. And they were the ones who were determining when an abortion could be legal or not pre-Roe. And I write about that. And then maybe the best example of it is uh, Katha Pollitt, this very important feminist writer. She wrote an introduction to a very good book called Choice Words, which was like a compendium of writing about abortion. It came out just a year ago. And she writes that when men write about abortion, and she gives lots of examples like in Hemingway and elsewhere, they're using abortion as like this symbol. And it's often a symbol of their own issues, like their own alienation, she says. Whereas when women are writing about it, it's sort of written in a very physical, immediate way. And I do not shy away from that. In my book, you confront abortion in all of its sort of physicality and in every single way what it will mean to a woman in particular to have one or or just as important if she's not able to have one um and so i sort of made peace with the fact that as a man i was able to sort of present 
the issues, I think, very, very fairly. Was it a different kind of writing for you? You know, no, um, it wasn't. But it was something that I was mindful of and making sure that my book didn't leave any stone unturned. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I write about the provision of abortion. I write about the violence of abortion. I write about the legality and medicine and on and on, on the politics um, through people. So, and, and, you know, something just to also say, it's very important for real people to understand America is now in a place it was not in 50 years ago. When, just to give one little example, people viewed abortion differently years ago. So when Linda Coffey files Roe, at that time, she's a religious Baptist. And the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest body of evangelical Christians in this country, was pro-choice until 1980. Like, I didn't know that. And then when they then come out against abortion and they come out against feminism, they basically say a woman has to be subservient to her partner. And then they come out against homosexuality and they, you know, like these horrible words, you know, it's aberrant behavior and all this stuff, you know, and she is devastated. She sort of has lost her footing. The church was very important to her. And she ends up having a breakdown and she ends up sort of living in a house without any heat and on food stamps. And you see the human toll of the sort of extremism and absolutism and politicization of abortion. Um, or even just to sort of step a little bit more macro level than that, President Clinton said that abortion ought to be something safe, legal, and rare. Well, nowadays, the pro-choice movement does not speak about abortion in those terms. It says, why should it be rare? It's a social and moral good. It's something that empowers women. It is only something to sort of feel good about. There's nothing, there shouldn't be any stigma attached to it. And you see sort of, you might agree with that, but the person who prefigured that sort of shift more than anyone is a doctor I write about in the book, Dr. Curtis Boyd. And he's now very extreme. He, he's now the largest provider of third trimester abortions in America. And he now believes that abortion ought to be legal right up until birth. And it, it makes you sort of wrestle with, hmm, like, where do I draw the line? On the other side, the sort of pro-lifers, it used to be Dr. Mildred Jefferson is someone I write about in the article in the book, the first black woman to ever graduate from Harvard Medical School, a very brilliant woman, becomes one of the heads of the pro-life movement. Well, back in 1976, when she's the head of something called the National Right to Life Committee, she says that there should be no exceptions for abortion. You know, uh, abortion should never be allowed, not rape, incest, health of the mother. And she's viewed as a radical. There's only three people on the whole board of 50 or so people in NRLC who agree with her. Well, now it's not at all radical. In fact, you have state after state that are passing these sort of trigger laws that when Roe is overturned, you know, it'll make abortion illegal to everyone from conception. And you realize that America nowadays is in a very different place than it was 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, because I have to say, as 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 excited as I am to feature your article this month in June, I'm also just have this pit and in my gut as far as what we all ostensibly know what's going to happen. And our discussion, our discussion might actually be falling the same weekend of the decision. And so I think that I just want to appreciate you so much for for all this time and the article and book, but I did want to sort of end on on that piece, like as a person, as a journalist, as a writer who has devoted 10, 12 years, and now you see about what is about to happen with Dobbs, what are your feelings at this point? Yeah, it's very, very, very depressing. I think this is an activist court. To to read the opinion is to see that this is the writing not really of a judge, but of an activist. You know, it and and one thing that is important to note is the first draft. And my guess is that a lot of the stuff that's missing from it 
will be in there. Like, I mean, right now there are literally sentences in there. They're like, oh, it's not the job of the Supreme Court to care about the reaction of like the country. It's like, are you kidding me? Could you be more like poking, you know, your finger in the eye of tens of millions of women and men? Um, it's a shocking opinion. And it's also like, it doesn't even purport to be fair. If people think that now abortion is going to sort of be nice and tidy and it'll go back to the States and everything will be fine, they're crazy. Um, the, the, the divide in our country is now going to be that much more extreme. You have on the one hand, people are going to be on the pro-life, they're going to be now trying to pass laws in certain states that a woman can't travel from here to there to get an abortion. They're gonna to try to ban medical abortions, you know, uh, meaning getting pills in the mail. On the other side, you have several states that have said they're gonna sort of fight for a right to have an abortion with no gestational cutoff at all. You can have an abortion straight through birth. I mean, these are very complicated things and it's very depressing. Um, and, you know, I'll just say you didn't ask me, but in writing this book, it, my thinking a little bit changed. I can tell you that I used to just sort of be reflexively in favor of Roe and hadn't really thought it through. Well, I now have thought about it for a lot of years. And I think that the best situation, the best sort of um, set of laws are in Western Europe, in, in France and Switzerland and these other countries. The cutoff for legal abortion is earlier in pregnancy than it is here. But until that point in the pregnancy, the state does everything it can to help the woman. Abortion is free and it's available everywhere. And obviously there are exceptions in case something goes wrong or you know, for the help of the fetus, the help of the mother, et cetera. Um, and we, we have the exact opposite. In this country, states throw endless obstacles in the way of the woman. She has to get consent and she has to sort of succumb, you know, she has to sort of have ultrasounds and she has to listen to a doctor tell her nonsense that abortion causes cancer and on and on and on. And the country is so screwed up on this subject that I really do believe that the only way forward, and it wouldn't happen overnight, is if people start to talk to each other. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thanks so much for your article and your book. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I want to thank Joshua Prager one more time for doing this interview. Thank you so much, not just for your words, but also for your article. Very, very much appreciated. Also want to thank you all out there, readers and discussers of the Article Club. I look forward to our conversation this Sunday at 2 p.m. If you have any questions about anything, please do not hesitate to email me at mark at highlighter.cc. I hope you have a great week.